Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The name's Bond. James Bond. Hang on a sec. I'm almost out and free. I've just been sleuthing in the supervillain's mansion. I really hope this homing key works. Ah, no time to admire the car. We've got to get on the road. Uh-oh, they're after me. I wonder what this button does. Hello, welcome to Patented podcast about the history of invention by History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm so sorry that was the worst Sean Connery impression ever. I've actually got a friend who does a really good Sean Connery impression, but I couldn't get hold of him. So I had to have a go, and I apologise profusely. Guess what? It's been 70 years this month since the first James Bond book came out, Casino Royale, by Ian Fleming. So we decided to find out a little bit about the inventions that have made James Bond James Bond, as it were. This time, we are going to get under the bonnet of his cars. And many of his cars in the movies might end up smoking piles of scrap metal. But to start with, the beautiful, iconic, state-of-the-art machines, which would definitely catch the attention of most of the bad guys. So what is a Bond car? What makes a Bond car a Bond car? What alterations and gadgets have they featured over the years? And were the cars of the films, the ones that Ian Fleming actually had in mind when he was thinking of James Bond. Well, to find out, I'm joined by Jason Barlow. He is the ultimate Bond car mastermind to find out what makes these cars just so special. But first, we spoke to Dave Butler, who was part of a top-secret intelligence-gathering operation behind the Iron Curtain. And I wanted to find out whether his car in East Germany had any of the gizmos of an actual Bond car. We were driving around in Mercedes Glendewagens. We also had Opel Senators. And uh, before reunification happened in 1990, we were actually trialling Audi Quattros. Comparisons between ours and James Bond vehicles? <laughs> Not really. However, having said that, we did have a certain amount of gadgets, if you want to call it that, on our vehicles. For instance, we had a light box in the driver's compartment where we could isolate all of the lights if we were driving to make us completely invisible at night and also we had in that light configuration we could make the vehicle headlights look like an east german military vehicle or a soviet military vehicle 
or even an East German civilian vehicle. We didn't have bulletproof windscreens because that was seen as though it was going to be a provocative act and might actually invite the Soviets to shoot at us rather than not. So no bulletproof windscreens. We did have long-range fuel tanks on our vehicles and we could hold about 300 litres fuel in the vehicles all around us, in the sills behind us and around us which actually, when we used to go to an East German garage to fill up, the attendant was always quite astonished because the average East German Trabant held 13 litres of fuel. And when the pump attendant got to about 100-odd litres and it was still going, we used to find them looking around the vehicle to try and see where the actual fuel was actually going from or if it was leaking out of the vehicle. Our vehicles also had armoured bump bars underneath them to protect the exhaust systems and the sumps because we did a lot of high-speed cross-country driving. And so it was necessary to have that in order to not wreck the bottom of the vehicles. Last but not least, we didn't have revolving number plates, but because of the light switch arrangement on the vehicle, we could actually black out the number plate light, so making ourselves invisible to that end. I have to say that even as a young child, I used to watch all of the Bond films and read all of the Bond books Little did I know at that time, at that early age, that later on in life, I would be gathering intelligence behind the lines against the enemy, being a spy for Her Majesty's government. Very interesting. It's funny how life turns out. Mm, okay, enough of reality. Let's get back to Bond. Seat belts, everyone. Eject a seat at the ready. Let's go. Jason, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. I like Bond, and I always get into trouble when I have discussions about Bond, because for me, there is no greater Bond film than Moonraker. I think it's the (laughs) greatest one. And that's the reaction I get, a sort of polite chuckle. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I appreciate that you've gone slightly against the norm there. I'm all in favour of that, Dallas. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just me having a bit of a pushing against the status quo. Most people think that Bond in space was the worst idea ever, including the people who produced the film. Really? It's the best idea. The era of the space shuttle, and it was a kind of exciting time. And suddenly seeing silver spacesuits and Roger Moore and people running around in orange boiler suits as things blow up. That was kind of it. Oh, I have a huge soft spot for that film. I think to apply kind of full-on film critical theory to the Bond canon is a risky enterprise at the best of times. You certainly won't get very far doing it with Moonraker, but to hell with all that. Hugo Drax, Michael Lonsdale, who played the villain in that film, is a terrific actor. I think he's one of the great Bond villains, actually. I I take it all back. I wouldn't say it's my favourite Bond film, but it's right up there for me. Actually, there was a podcast, I think it was Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery did a podcast a few years ago. I can't remember when it was, talking about Moonraker. They dissected Moonraker. It was quite interesting, actually. Actually, was Moonraker the one where Jaws had the kind of romantic, he fell in love with someone? Yeah. They're in Brazil, I think they're in Rio, and they're in one of those cable cars, and it crashes spectacularly. And then out of the rubble, he spies the young lady with the round glasses and the plaited hair. Yeah, that's right. It also, interestingly, given that I'm supposedly here to talk about Bond cars, when I was researching the book, it was a bit of a thin chapter, because there aren't very many cars. Drax owns a couple of 
wonderful, uh, I think he has a Rolls Royce and a nice Sota Fraschini, which is a very rare groove, 20s Italian car. But it's certainly not one of the more car-oriented films because they're too busy flying into space and space shuttles. Okay, so Bond cars. Why do we have Bond car? Why is that a kind of recurring theme? There are all these little recurring themes in the Bond brand, as it were. So the car thing, was Fleming into cars? Like, what's the deal? Yes, he was. And he was quite assiduous in how he cast the cars in the novels. James Bond drove an Aston Martin DB Mark III, often referred to as a DB3 in the Goldfinger novel. In the Moonraker novel, I think Drax, who we were just talking about, I think he has a Mercedes 300S or something. And of course, he wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. So yes, he... That's the best Bond car. <laughs> <laughs> well, it flew. <laughs> it flew and it did amazing stuff. Certainly, there's some commonality there, you know. But yeah, I mean, so there'd been other books, you know, there'd been a history of the Bond women, clothes, I think, gadgets, if I recall, but there'd never been one about the cars. And so the fact that the Bond universe could sustain an entire book, which I wrote a couple of years ago, focusing entirely on the cars that appear in the films would suggest that they're important enough to bond. The Aston Martin DB5, that was in Goldfinger and Thunderball. That and the Lotus Esprit, that was in The Spy Love Me, are the two best known. But I just want to know about sort of Fleming, when, you know, what was his connection with cars? I mean, the fact that he wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and starred a car. So he must have been some kind of car freak. He certainly liked cars. To an extent, Bond was, I wouldn't say his alter ego, but there was quite a lot of Fleming in James Bond. You know, I think Fleming liked beautiful women. He liked drinking. He had Goldeneye in Jamaica, the wonderful house that's now owned, I think, by Chris Blackwell, who founded Island Records. He was a man who enjoyed life and fast cars, I think, are often drawn into that orbit as well. He owned some nice cars. He was good friends with a guy called Amherst Villiers, who was an amazing individual. Actually, I did some research on him. He was an engineer. I think he invented the supercharger or something. He was also a very, very accomplished painter, an artist. I'm sure he had something to do with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well. So Fleming moved in fascinating circles. He knew people in the intelligence services, the military, the Navy. I was a journalist for a while and then started writing the novels. But he loved cars, yeah. It's interesting how he gives these cars almost magical properties. And actually, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is quite a good example of the most magical and fantastical. But all the Bond cars, we like them because they're exciting cars, perhaps. But they also do special things that other cars don't do. There's that sense of mystery and adventure and magic. Without a doubt. You know, the DB5, there's some good trivia around that car. So in the 60s, I think that film came out in 1964. The special effects guy in charge was a chap called John Steers. He worked on the first eight Bond films. He won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects in 1966. I mean, was it a normal car? Did they just go out to the showroom and buy a DB5? And then what happened to it? Did he come along and say, right, we're going to put in an injector seat? So it was John Steers who did all the special effects. And then the production designer on the Bond films was a genius called Ken Adam, who won two or three Oscars, I think. So basically, this is a quote from Ken. I had a Jaguar which was continuously being damaged by people parking badly, having guns at the back of the Aston Martin, and the overriders became like boxing gloves and so on. It became part of me releasing my frustrations. I'm a sports car freak myself, you see. So all the ideas for the gimmickry and gadgets were no problem. They were just my own dreams. I got rid of a lot of my inhibitions when it came to designing the Aston Martin. That makes me so happy. So this comes from his own internal struggle with low-quality parking, presumably in London. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's he great. Got fed up with people bumping into his car in London in the 60s. And so the idea of sort of having gadgety cars as part of Bond's 
oeuvre wasn't Fleming. It came from someone else. No, no. Stairs, Ken Adam, and another guy that we should mention here is a guy called Michael Lamont. And then Ken Adams dreams up all this crazy stuff based on getting fed up with people bumping into his car in London. He goes, right, we'll have guns coming out the front. We'll have overriders, all this amazing stuff. And then he gave all the ideas to this guy called Michael Lamont. And this is Goldfinger. And they had so little time to do it. So it's Michael Lamont's job to turn Ken's crazy thoughts into something practical. So he drew it all up. Apparently, the schedule was so tight, they even did some work on Christmas Eve. The car was delivered to Pinewood Studios in January 64, at which point, Stairs and his team, check these names out, Jimmy Ackland Snow, Frank George, and my favorite, Bert Luxford. You couldn't write those. No. These guys were tasked with taking what started with Ken Adams' sort of crazy ideas. They've been sketched up, drafted by Michael Lamont, and now they're the guys under the direction of Stairs, the SFX wizard, to go, right, we've got to make this stuff work. They actually built them. Yeah, and this is the other thing I love about the early films, 60s films in general, and the early 70s. You know, there was no CGI back then. Well, that was my question, because presumably well, a lot of this stuff now you do in CGI, we'll, we'll probably get to that. But you actually had to physically make a gun that would come out of a... You could, Actually, you should tell us on that DB5 what the crazy things were, actually, just so we've got it in our mind. Okay, we had hydraulic rams on the bumpers, a Browning .30 caliber machine gun behind the front indicators, tar slashers secreted in the wheel hubs, an oil slick dispenser, revolving license plates. <laughs> this is a good one. Goldfinger was directed by Guy Hamilton, who's another very suave, urban individual. And he said, that was my contribution because I was getting a lot of parking tickets at the time. So you can imagine just revolve the number plates. I mean, one of the other things that the DB5 has is a primitive sat-nav. I mean, when you watch the film back now, and there's a scene where Sean Connery is tracking Goldfinger's progress via this little GPS thing, and you go, yeah, they invented it. Then there was the ejector seat, of course, tire slashers, telephone in the driver's door, center console between the seats, the radar tracking system, a weapons tray was stashed under the driver's seat. And this is interesting. There were some gadgets that were envisaged but shelved. They were going to have two spotlights in the front that concealed flamethrowers, and they were going to fire three-pronged nails from the taillights to puncture the pursuer's tires. But apparently they were a bit worried that people might get the wrong idea and go, oh, I'll have that in my car, and they didn't want to be responsible for all that. You know, when you're a kid at school and you're drawing cars in your exercise book, you always draw things like massive machine guns on them and flamethrowers and that kind of stuff. Well, I wanted to be a car designer when I was a kid, so... I just drew outrageous sports cars. I still do. I know the design director at Ferrari and the design director at Lamborghini and the design director at Aston Martin. And sometimes I show them my sketches and then they go, yeah, you wouldn't have made it. Is it like that episode of The Simpsons? Do you remember The Simpsons when Homer designs the ultimate car? <laughs> do you remember that one? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so we've got an idea of the gadgets. Yeah, you were saying that they were actually built by these people with wonderful names on set. I mean, did the gadgets work or were they just for show? Yeah, they did. They did, yeah. Not an ejector seat, surely. No, it did work. It did work. So this is John Steers. It all had to go in one car. It was terrifying because if that car had broken down, we'd have been in deep trouble. The first thing I was going to do was make the hole for the ejector seat. I marked it out, taped it off on the roof of the car. I looked at it, went away, had a cup of coffee, came back and got the drill and drilled the hole. And that was it. That's how we started. So that was John Steers. What else? The bulletproof shield as well. I love that. That came up at the back. This is Bert Luxford. To get the tank in there, the bulletproof shield had to be taken out. Then we put that back in after the shot for the bullet effects. This is how they made it work. They used Bowden cables, tiny little gear sets, 
electromagnetic valves, compressed air cylinders, the smokescreen. So they found a small man and they squeezed him into the boot of the car and he triggered the smokescreen. So there was actually someone in there. Yeah, this is Steers again. This is a lovely quote. When I first mentioned to my lads my intentions, well, their language was rather choice to say the least. Let's just say they thought I was off my rocker. I love it. We should point out that that car, the DB5, it wasn't just in Goldfinger. It was like seven. Was it seven more Bond films that car popped up in over the years? Yeah, they keep bringing it back. It was in Thunderball. Then they brought it back in Goldeneye and there's that car chase where Pierce Brosnan races Famke Janssen's character. She's in a Ferrari F355 and he chases her down a mountainside road. You know what I want to do? I think they should get Herzog. Sorry, listeners, we were talking about Herzog earlier on the film director. Get Herzog to direct a Bond movie. And then for the car, it would be something like a De Chaveur, a 2CV or something. Do you like not that. remember Fear Eyes Only? Was there a 2CV in it? Yes, that's probably my favourite Bond car chase of all. In Fear Eyes Only, 1981, Roger Moore film. He's fleeing the scene with Melina Havelock, played by Carol Bouquet. And she has a Citroen 2CV. What do I know? It's interesting you mentioned Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino earlier dissecting Moonraker because Live and Let Die is another one of my favourites. That was the first Roger Moore film, 1973, if memory serves. And it was on TV again. You know, the other thing I love about Bond films is no matter how often you watch them, if they pop up on ITV4 or whatever it might be, even if you've missed the first half hour, I will always sit and watch, if not all of it, I'll just watch 40 minutes of it. Because I know the story inside out. They just have this kind of cinematic comfort blanket in a way, you know, oh, a Bond film, which one is it? Oh yeah, no, I like this one. It's a bit like kind of premiere in. When you go and stay in a premiere in, you know exactly what you're going to get. And there are certain themes that it hits. It's like the colour, the bed, the arrangement of the room. And a Bond film is basically that. You know there's going to be a scene with Q. You know there's going to be some snogging. There's going to be some kind of car thing. You're right, it's that familiarity which is comforting. And in our sort of crazy mixed-up world, actually all you want is Roger Moore raising an eyebrow. So the nostalgia thing is hugely important, you know, because Bond is inescapable. We all grew up with it. Not all of the films are absolutely world-class, but even the less successful Bond films still have huge things to recommend them. And not least is that nostalgia. And you just hit on something quite important, I think, which is in a world that is difficult for a lot of people, challenging... There is something lovely about retreating to a film or an area that just takes you away from all that for a while. I wouldn't underestimate the power of that as a thing in itself. I'll be back with Jason after this. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records to what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means from the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service to the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis and I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval in April we'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. I want to talk a little bit about just before we move on to the next car because there's obviously other cars in the franchise we need to talk about what makes a good James Bond car forget about the gadgets for a moment just in terms of central casting what are the parameters of Bond car casting I mean it's a good question there's a basic sort of truth here which you just need to get out of the way, which is the Eon Productions. And I know the guys there and I've worked with them quite closely and they're all very cool and they're custodians of this phenomenal thing. But they also know how to do a deal. <laughs> so the Pierce Brosnan films in the 90s, they had a deal with BMW. Most recently, in No Time to Die, unfortunately COVID wrecked the plan, but the brand new Land Rover Defender figured very highly in the car chase scene in that. The car's global reveal was going to coincide with the premiere of the film but then obviously the film got postponed for 18 months and best laid plans. So product placement, money is involved. <laughs> there is a degree of that. But that said, and of course, companies desperately want the exposure that you get from a Bond film. Although it was quite funny in No Time to Die that the villains were all in these Land Rover Defenders and Bond was driving a beaten up old Toyota Land Cruiser, I think. Anyway, but the other thing to say is that the Aston Martin, there was an Aston Martin V8 in No Time to Die that was originally in The Living Daylights, the Tim Dalton film. And I spoke to Michael G. Wilson, who, along with Barbara Broccoli, is the producer and keeper of The Flame. They're just emotional about it. They're sentimental about it. You remember the scene in, I think, Spectre, isn't it? Where they go to the lockup and the DB5's in there. And no, it's not Spectre at all. It's Skyfall, I beg your pardon. It's a really good film, Skyfall. It's terrific. I think it and Casino Royale are probably the two best Daniel Craig era Bond films. But yes, you're right. They have the moment. He opens the lockup and there it is. And suddenly we're back with Sean Connery in a way. And it's that legacy feeling, isn't it? Exactly. You ask the question, what, what makes a great Bond car? In that moment when the lockup opens and there's Judy Dench's M and Daniel Craig is 007 and there's the DB5. And it is every bit as important a character and has all the emotional resonance of any of the human beings in the film. It's not just cars and Bond films, but just cars generally. We imbue them with emotional resonance and personality and meaning. I suppose it comes from the design, the visual look of it. It depends on the car. But yes, I mean, my daughter, we have a Renault Twingo outside and it's called Ringo because it rhymes with Twingo and it's a little character. And it so happens that my family like to anthropomorphize things and all the cars take on personalities. And Without getting bogged down in the sort of car design and so on, I mean, back in the day, 
cars in the 60s and the 70s, they had faces, you know, they did because headlights had to be a certain design legislatively. And this is why I personally respond more to historic cars than I do modern ones, because designers want everything to look aggressive and everything looks pissed off. (laughs) You're right. That's why I don't really like the look of modern motorcycles. That's why I still buy 1980s vintage motorcycles. It's just a little bit more relaxed. It doesn't look so uptight. And yeah, modern motorcycles, they look like they're going to punch you in the face. Totally. And it's the same with cars. A lot of it is to do with LED lights and advances in lighting technology. So all the lights become incredibly slender, which allows car designers to indulge their fantasies of designing cars that look incredibly aggressive and angry, even some family cars. And I'm like, what happened to designing a car that looked like it didn't want to headbutt you? You know, why can't we have something that looks a bit friendly? Anyway, the cars that people really love in the Bond films, they have character and soul and personalities. And the DB5, which has reappeared in a number of occasions, clearly the producers feel that that is a vehicle that packs a major emotional punch and can do a callback every bit as successfully as a human being. When I think of cars and meaning, you think of the DeLorean in Back to the Future, which was the futuristic car that was made of aluminium with gullwing doors. And that car is the star of Back to the Future for all the reasons that you know. The Lotus Esprit fulfills that role, doesn't it? Because it's so futuristic looking. It doesn't have the kind of round curves and that warmth of, I don't know, an Aston Martin. It's like ridiculous. It's a bit back to the future Well, it's interesting you should bring the DeLorean into this because, yes, I would say the DeLorean is the most famous movie car in the world. Probably the DB5 is close behind and then the Lotus Esprit and the Spy Love Me. The interesting thing is that the Esprit and the DeLorean were designed by the same man who's still alive. I had no idea. I should say I'm from Northern Ireland and friends of my parents were working for the company. And I'm incredibly passionate about the DeLorean story because I lived through it. DeLorean was a fascinating man, shall we say. The whole story is very complex, but they built the DeLorean in a factory on the outskirts of a very troubled housing estate in Belfast at the height of the troubles in the early 80s. I get quite emotional about the DeLorean because to me, it wasn't just a car. It's not just the thing that appeared in Back to the Future. It had a big social impact on the world that I grew up in in the early 80s. However, we'll get back to who designed it, which is a guy called Giorgetto Giugiaro, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a few years ago. He's probably regarded as the single greatest car designer of all time. He once described using a car such as the Lotus Esprit on a daily basis as like going to the office in a space suit. And you have a couple of space suits, don't you? I do. Yeah, I do. Which is like, I love this guy. For listeners, just remind us what the Lotus Esprit looks like. Just paint it for us in our listeners' minds. Well, it's a wedge. It's maybe not the most technical term, but that's how they describe the typology, the prevailing graphics of cars in the 1970s. Giugetto Giugiaro was one of the key architects of that look. So in the 50s and 60s, cars, mainly Italian sports cars, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Alfa Romeos, all the rest of them, they were very curvy. They were sensual and sensuous, and they had full volumes and lovely full shapes. And by the late 60s, Giugiaro and another designer called Marcello Gandini, who's another genius as far as I'm concerned. Both these guys, who for me were real artists, they suddenly went, nah, we don't want cars to look like that anymore. And they drew these phenomenal dart-like profiles, a wedge nose, and suddenly the future had arrived. The Esprit, I think, Giugiaro showed a concept car in 1972. This is how it worked in those days. You would create this concept car and then sell the design to a car company. And Colin Chapman, who was the boss of Lotus at the time, 
he liked it and he bought it and the car subsequently appeared, I think, 1976. Was there a kind of an arms race in terms of gadgets for this car? Because this car is all about the future and it's a different design. For me, the famous thing is it goes underwater. Yeah, this is probably the most famous of all the Bond cars in terms of its gadgets and what it could do. What was interesting is these days, the cars that appear in the films are usually the result of product placement or a big deal. It's not just Aeon, all movie studios, this is how they work. And this is how car companies work and indeed other companies. You know, they all want their products to be showcased on the best possible canvas. But in 1976, when they were in pre-production on The Spy Love Me, things were a bit simpler, actually. An enterprising Lotus PR man called Don McLaughlin who'd supplied a Lotus Europa to another film, a film called Eleven Harrow House, which had James Mason in it. He got tipped off and he said, you know, they're starting work on the next Bond film. And he took a prototype of the Esprit and parked it outside the 007 production office in Pinewood Studios. And he left it there. And the special effects guys, the producers, they're coming out and going for lunch. And they're passing this car and going, holy shit, what's that? We've got to get that in the film. And that's how they did it. That, that is how they did it. That was it. And it was done in a handshake. They supplied two cars, seven body shells, spare parts, and the deal costs the equivalent of about a hundred grand in today's money, which is absolute buttons. And then whenever the script called for the Lotus to be submersible. Were there lots of them? Did they make fiberglass ones? or They made scale models. They filmed all that in the Bahamas. They jumped a real thing off the jetty into the Tyrrhenian Sea using a compressed air cannon. Then it's a scale model. There were shell cars rigged. One was cut in half for the scenes with Roger Moore and Barbara Back. There's a good quote here from one of the associate producers. Everything was designed to operate for 30 seconds or a minute or however long the camera was running purely for that purpose. It doesn't work before and it doesn't work afterwards. There's something really lovely about pre-CGI, like before we could just do anything on a computer and do anything, when you actually had to make things. So Jaws is obviously the classic example. Part of the reason why you hardly ever see the shark in the film is because it looks so bad. And the same with Alien as well is another good example. You never see the alien because, of course, if you could, it would just look rubbish. But they're better because of that. The action, in a way, takes place in your imagination. And now when you watch heavily CGI film, it's like being vomited over. There's nothing left of the imagination because it's all just vomited onto a screen for you. I 100% agree with you. And it's one of the reasons why I have zero interest in saying the new Avatar, the way of the water, or whatever nonsense name it's got. It's why I much prefer the first three Star Wars films because there was a lot of practical effects. I mean, obviously, the industrial light and magic was more or less invented, I think, by George Lucas to realize the spaceships and that stuff. Blade Runner is the other great example, I think. Although I absolutely adore Blade Runner 2049, which obviously has a lot more CGI than the 1982 original. But if you see the footage of the great big camera passing over the models of the cityscapes in the original Blade Runner film, of course, directed by Ridley Scott, as was Alien. I like in Alien the water dripping and the sense that, oh, all of that stuff. And it's real. Well, that's it. We create the tension in our imaginations. Exactly. What's the future of Bond cars? Because as cars change... As the meaning of cars change, our relationship with cars is changing. How is that going to project forward? And actually, I don't know what the hell's happening with Bond of the Future. You got killed off in the last Well, one, indeed. Right? It's an excellent question, Dallas. And indeed, a brand new car, a 2023 car, even a fairly accessible one, contains the sort of technology that they could only have dreamt of in the 1960s and 70s, and frankly, even the early 80s. You know, I'm not talking about missile launchers and stuff, but just the way you connect your smartphone with a car and suddenly you're connected to the whole world. 
So I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting that in the most recent Bond film, the car they were most proud of was the Aston Martin V8, which is a car that was on sale from 1968, 69. So they were always going to be looking back, you think. No longer are we going to be having the latest thing. I think because the Lotus Esprit kind of represents the latest thing. Whereas now we seem to be creeping back with nostalgia with things like the Aston Martin. and Yeah, there's an element of that for sure. But for the reasons we talked about earlier, that sort of emotional comfort that you get from it. Even 007 is not adverse to a bit of nostalgia. That said, in Die Another Day, 2002, Probably the most reviled Bond car of all time was the Vanquish that they nicknamed the Vanish, which had some terrible CGI in it. It's actually not a horrendous film. I rewatched it and I thought, this isn't as bad as I remembered. It's not anybody's favourite Bond film. The car was based on the Aston Martin Vanquish, which was a wonderful car. I actually wrote a story for a friend of mine who looks after Wired magazine when the No Time to Die came out. He said, I want you to do a piece on that car. So I looked into it and the Vanquish nickname, The Vanish, you'll recall, is the invisible car that disappeared. And everybody was like, oh, for goodness sake, this is absurd. But you know what? It was actually based on genuine technology that was being developed by the MOD at the time. And it was effectively covered in kind of prismatic panels, I think, and it reflected the light back. And it was real. Invisibility cloaks are a thing. They well, are. Not a very good thing, but they're a thing. No, that's the thing. But it was actually the scriptwriters who got a lot of flack for including it. And as I say, most people think it's the most rubbish Bond car there's been. What is the definitive Bond car? Which one is it? I mean, the definitive Bond car is probably the Aston Martin DB5. I have a huge soft spot for the Lotus Esprit that was in The Spy Love Me. But I'm a movie guy, I'm a car guy, I'm a pop culture guy. I personally, there's a car chase sequence in Octopussy in which 007 steals an Aston Martin GTV6. And I love that. I love that car chase. I love that car. The key to car chases for me is how sideways a car gets. I grew up watching the A-Team and Starsky and Hutch and the Dukes of Hazzard and even the professionals in their Ford Capris and RS2000s. Anything that goes sideways, I love. Knight Rider. Knight Rider didn't really go sideways. He was too busy back-chatting Michael Knight and talking nonsense. But I love the GTV6 and Octopussy. And actually, I really love the Citroen 2CV and Furize only. Did you ever find yourself shouting at people saying, stop getting Bond wrong, like in the Alan Partridge sketch? No, I know Steve Coogan, actually. I, I've spoken to him. About- There's a scene where they're going to watch all the Bond films back to back, and he's living in this static caravan, and he's got them all on VHS. They're going to have their Bondathon, And then Lynn drops some sunny delight into the box of VHSs, and it all goes wrong. And so he narrates it. And they're all having their opinions about Bond. And he's like, stop getting Bond wrong. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Sorry about the name drop, but I do know Steve because he's a big car guy and we've got to know each other over the years. He owns quite a lot of nice cars and he had an Esprit S1. And I think he bought an Aston Martin DBS as well. And I'm not saying that Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge are closer <laughs> than anybody thinks, but there's a fair bit of Partridge and Steve. There we go. Well, listen, your book, Jason, just for those who want to go really in depth into the history of Bond cars is called? Well, it's called Bond Cars, The Definitive Guide. Imaginative title. Yeah. And actually we did struggle a bit with that. And also it was like, well, what do we put in the cover? There were various different versions, but you asked me the question, what are the definitive Bond cars? Well, the DB5 and the Esprit are the two cars that are on the cover of the book. It's still out there. It's still available, available from familiar online retailers, but I would encourage your listeners to go to a proper bookshop. There you go. Jason, it's been lovely to chat. It's been lovely to chat Bond cars. And I like the fact that we kind of segued into other cars in films because cars in films are important. 
Yeah, they are. And I think, you know, to wrap it all up, really, the key cars in the Bond films, and indeed any other film, whether it's Smokey and the Bandit or Back to the Future, the cars become huge characters and the audiences develop a relationship with them, become invested in them as they do with the human co-stars. Exactly. Hey, lovely to chat. Come back and talk about something else soon. Come back and talk about movies. We'll do some movie history stuff at some point. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Dallas. Lovely to talk. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, don't forget, there are already two Inventing Bond episodes out and more to come for your delight and delectation. Next time, we are going to be looking at the invention of the cocktail. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series if you're enjoying it and get all your friends and family to subscribe too, by force if necessary. And of course, you can get in touch with us by email, by social media, by stalking me on the street, however you like to do it. That's absolutely fine. We love to hear from you. I'll see you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.